Welcome to the Suburban Abyss, weekly transmissions from the leafy green nowhere. Music, pop culture, pandemic life, yard work, remote work, and the eternal quest for discount groceries. Episode 18, Travis and John O. Fight for Sting's Non-Sexual Affection. The Suburban Abyss returns from its summer break with my first ever guests, record collectors and lifelong music fans Travis Dryden and John O'Neill who spent an hour with me in Boise discussing the highs and lows of Sting's recorded output with the police and as a solo artist. Travis and John are the two biggest police fans I know. As younger brother to Travis by nearly a decade, his musical tastes, especially early on, were a huge influence on my exploration of sound. When our family got cable television in 1983, Travis tuned in to MTV as often as he could, and usually I rode shotgun on the couch with him. I was all of five years old when the police released their final studio album, Synchronicity, but watching their videos and absorbing their albums via osmosis as they wafted down the stairs from my brother's bedroom, their music became ingrained in me, and more than any other band, the police fondly transport me back to this time in my young life. I remain a big fan to this day. I'm a big fan of this week's guests, too. I like to stay out of other people's bedrooms, but I'd venture to say that Travis and Jono are not masters of tantric sex. For that matter, neither am I. But they both seem to tan well, so in that way they are not unlike Sting. And like Sting, they are thinkers. Introspective humans who attempt to make sense of their world through music, film, literature, and their own creative explorations. And while the recent release of Sting's duets album did not qualify as an international war crime, the atrocity of the act nonetheless inspired me to ask Travis and John O to share their thoughts, however fawning or conflicted, on the collected works of the man born Gordon Matthew Thomas Sumner. First question, where does Sting, and by extension, the police, begin for both of you? And we'll start with our elder statesman, John O. The police begin for me, and Sting is an extension of that. <laughs> and uh, I thought that um, oh, I was such a police head. I mean, it's just like uh, they were so great. Um, but, uh, you know, I was reading up on the man, and uh, he had a history uh, going into it um, of, like, you know, jazz music and stuff like that. He's an intriguing figure for uh, um, uh, somebody who likes to think too much. And uh, he's never uh, proven to be like a person who never thinks too much. And, uh, you know, he's like got a lot of the self-importance that, uh, you know, thinking people have. Like our uh, um, thoughts are so darned important that they are uh, um, worth sharing with the world no matter how silly they are but you know he came along at a time when uh, I was ready for like short songs and uh, really aggressive song uh, structures and they like delivered all that and musicianship and uh, you couldn't help but just sort of ride along and uh, you know and they they were huge for me. They were right up there with Elvis Costello and and the Sex Pistols and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they were, you know, just a... a <laughs> they were just like a great band, 
uh, it just uh, was it, <laughs> you just sort of responded to them as a person who was into like 60s uh, rock and rock songs that were uh, um, short and to the point, you know, and that unusual voice, that high-pitched voice, uh, and the the reggae. Uh, they just like uh, they just checked a lot of boxes for like a uh, white male from uh, the United States, uh, and they just. Uh, you know, I went out of my way to get the import singles. I went out of my way to like track down the uh, um, B sides, and I, you know, I never really lost interest in them. As the police, I never, you know, like uh, I lost interest in Elvis Costello. Probably right about like uh, Blood and Chocolate. Not that those records were bad, mind you. It wasn't because the records were bad. I just like was fatigued by the uh, by the output. But uh, you know, it, it <laughs> and unlike a lot of uh, artists that like, jump off onto their own, I was intrigued by the Sting solo material and like working with Branford Marsalis and that. You know, and that whole thing uh, um, rang a bell with me. Like, uh, having those, like, incredible players and him switching to guitar. It's just, it just cracked me up that, uh, you know, that he was just doing whatever he was. And, I, you know, and I was playing by that time and, I was, and uh, you know, learning songs. And uh, he was an inspiration. But, you know, the, he, the fatigue set in later in the Sting uh, solo career because it just, I don't know. I don't know if I reacted to how big he was, you know, and like all the MTV uh, videos and the, the, I mean, the lyrics have always been self-important and like, you know, overly ornate, but he... You know, I'd never heard of Nabokov before. <laughs> Sting like inserted him into a, uh, a, a a song, and so you know, I read the books and stuff like that. That's you know just the kind of thing that a bookish like young white guy would like dig into. Um, when 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 was the first time you guys like heard that? I mean, you're younger than I am, but uh, still. Um, you must have you must have dug into the Sting um, stardom era. Yeah, for for me, the Police were quintessentially '80s at the time I discovered them, and like you, white middle America, lower middle class. I had won a stereo in a drawing in junior high school, and that opened up all kinds of doors. So now. I was part of the consumer base. I would rush to buy a single or a maxi single or maxi single cassette. Uh, bought most things on cassette at that time. Would buy double cassettes. I had some albums, but Ghost in the Machine is where it really came on for me because at the time, like you, I was bookish in a way. I would stay up really late at night reading. I was into fantasy literature. Uh, paladins and knights and 
Tolkien and all of this dark sort of mysterious magical stuff and and if you look at Ghost in the Machine there's this there's this sort of modern day monastic quest thing that kind of runs through that album and I I'll admit I had to look back and check my dates but for me Ghost in the Machine was released in 81 I probably picked it up with two or three years later to be honest right in Ohio north you know eastern Ohio was not mainstreaming but then I looked for some of the other seminal albums and bands that I had discovered that elicited similar feelings. Rush's Signals was only a year later in 82, and even going forward a few years to, to Paul Simon's Graceland, my comment on that is this: they captured something about that age for me and the searching and the, the impending darkness of the economics and the political things that were unfolding. So yeah, I thought way too much, but yeah. I did dig the dark droning sort of meditative, uh, again, monastic quality of Ghost in the Machine, but it was technical at mm-hmm. the same time. So I, he was just, Sting being part of that was like, who are these dark techno-monastic paladins, you know, coming at me? Yeah, the funny thing about that group is is that how, like, his vision took over. But, you know, when you are in a, uh, when you are in a group, you ride the hot hand. And, uh, I mean, he didn't even actually form that group. It was Stuart Copeland that formed that group, uh, who also has a really interesting, like, uh, pedigree. You know, his, like, father was in the OSS in the World War II and was like one of the founding members of the CIA. And uh, Stuart, uh, I mean, Stuart Copeland uh, um, and his brother Miles. Miles Copeland is another like person that is really underrated in the whole police sting story. Uh, was uh, their manager. Thought of like these, you know, thought of such great things as the... Uh, um, the low-cost tour of the United States instead of like renting a tour bus they you know had a um, they drove around in the equipment van and like set up their own gear and like were aggressive I mean you know why they all had like blonde hair early on right because they got paid for a Wrigley Spearmint gum ad in the UK And they all and the band had to like you know. That's dye a their juicy hair. bit of trivia there. I didn't know. Oh, I didn't know seriously, that. Seriously, um, I know a lot more than I will admit in in polite company about this <laughs> stuff. I like especially that period. But Stuart Copeland formed that band. He had a guy named Henry Badowski as the guitar player, and uh, he his whole idea was to uh, have a punk band, quote unquote punk band well i was curious about that too because i i was too young to remember that time but yeah it uh, was about the time that uh i don't know that you were born right right so i think the what fallout was 1976 1977 i think it was 77 and i was born in 77 so like my first experience with the police was a combination of mtv which we got cable in 1983 Mm -hmm. and also the music coming out of Travis's bedroom from upstairs, mm-hmm. and I still will listen to uh, "Walking on the Moon" and other police songs, and it 
takes me back to our house and hearing this emanating out of his room or takes seeing me totally these, back to these videos and it's weird being this like five six year old kid who picked this up through osmosis basically and just sitting there on the couch with him drip feeding mtv and not really having my big like sort of musical um you know well you have um, nothing to compare it against as a four or five year old which is like yeah. you know um which is a similar experience to me except this is like happening in 1964 and 65 mm. and when my siblings who were like graduating from high school are like uh introducing me to diane diana ross the supremes uh, uh the beatles um dave clark five um freddie and the dreamers all those like 60s beat groups and stuff and uh that was my upbringing was uh three minute songs pop songs like that um and it's funny there's a gay yeah, my brother graduated in 65 moved out um 66 and stuff so i of course missed sergeant peppers and the white album mm. until he got back from vietnam and like introduced me to abbey road i think i was like uh um, explaining that to one of the kids up front is just like yeah I, had, I did not hear Sergeant Peppers in its entirety until mm -hmm. 1987 wow when the CD came out that's crazy. remember when the CD came out yeah and uh, yeah and I listened to that obsessively but uh, you know um, when you're a kid Chad me you don't have anything to compare it against you just like accept it as like you know this is cool yeah, and that that's how the police was for me. I yeah. like that they had cool videos, and yeah. I mean, this is later police, not early police. And my what my question is to you guys are having lived through the birth of punk and the police coming from the so-called punk world, and they've never really seemed like a punk band, at least maybe in their spirit they thought they would. How much of the, was there a resistance to them from the punk community, or how I mean, many they people were embraced not, them? They were not. Um, they were very quickly like branded new wave mm -hmm. yeah and uh then they like became something bigger yeah new you wave know. was definitely the well that was the, like there was the big that was the genre to be in and that was the that was that well that sound, was right? that was kind of the attempt to and in, in the punk eyes it was the attempt to um uh sanitize punk music and make it acceptable so they could move tonnage yeah. you know and that's always the big deal it's always the big deal with like the uh, record companies is moving tonnage they've got to mm. move tonnage and it failed i mean the knack was sure. like uh the knack was a legitimate group um a lot of those like you know late 70s bands uh were legitimate groups but then there were like groups that were like assembled i mean that's just how that's just how the music business works so the runaways were like conceived even though they proved hard to tame right uh it uh it was like an attempt and this kind of stuff goes on all the time yeah next next question you know like next story next like ne next group there's always somebody coming off the bus from elsewhere mm -hmm. well that's that's 
speaks to MTV and the, you know that was that was intense and conspicuous consumption. So Incredible. the faster that they could feed it to us, and, and being a young person, you know, being a teenager, it was you know, a core audience, and it, we ate it up as fast as we could get it. Like Chad said, a new video, a new hit song, you played it to death. You bought the maxi single, maybe you bought the album if there was anything else your friends told you was remotely uh, interesting on it, but it, it follows that same arc of the MTV, you know, part of the loss of AOR, the big produce the big production album all the the thematics and for me i thought wow this band speaks to me and i was actually disappointed and, and challenged when i went back to outlandos to zendada uh Minata, to uh regatta de blanc because i thought this isn't what i signed up for <laughs> who are these guys this doesn't sound anything like what i enjoy yeah so for me i stayed in ghost in the machine until a few years later when Synchronicity came out. And for me, the journey kind of went back to go forward because, you know, Roxanne, I mean, the subject matter alone is like a whole other thread we can touch on. But, like, he's saying about interest, or they saying about interesting and, and, and okay. challenging things. Yeah. You know, prostitution and even uh, listening a little bit to Message in a Box today, going back as far to that quasi-punk... Uh, born in the 50s or landlord yeah fallout it's like they were so edgy i'm sure they felt it 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 had a it had a feeling to it but it wasn't as hard as maybe they thought it was but well i think it's too is like the the atypical vocal delivery i mean he wasn't like johnny rotten he wasn't i wouldn't say sting sneered i mean he kind of had an attitude in his voice but it was also the unique and the if you would try to like pin it or you know box it into a punk sound mm-hmm. having that voice and also just the fact that like he was like if you read the lyrics like these stanzas are all rhyming mm-hmm. and that's not very that's his educational giveaway right, right. like yeah. he was too smart not to rhyme and he's a teacher communicating stanzas right and he was learned and, and copeland too yeah. they were all they were all better yeah. off kids right yeah. so they read they'd been exposed to literature they knew concepts like that but yeah i remember that the uh like i mean they came together um they came together as like a uh in the punk group phase and like uh henry badowski's uh limitations became apparent and the ideal the idea kind of fizzled out when but Sting's songwriting came to the fore, and then when they got Andy Summers, who uh, mm-hmm. had been in groups before, like the Soft Machine, I think he was in the Soft well, Machine. Wasn't he like ten years older than mm-hmm. Copeland yeah. and Sting? Yeah. yeah, senior man. And he could like play incredible ninth chords and stuff. And uh, I think he was in the band at the same time as Henry Badowski, and he was like uh, um, was so much better. That uh, you know, Henry saw the writing on the wall and, and exited. But um, yeah, I was yeah I was obsessed with that kind of stuff. He's an incredible guitar player, Andy Summers. Um, but uh, I don't know those kind of things like uh, come together. I mean, it's like uh, the the drumming, the jazz influenced uh, bass playing. But um, it it wasn't simple music, but it was like in a really simple format, the the three piece band format. So they defied a lot of expectations. 
but uh, the lyrics are wordy and uh, not I'm kind of not overly clever but clever enough <laughs> to like you know make uh, you know people who are into Rush appreciate it <laughs> well was it you or we were maybe talking this week or somebody else you were just like what the hell is Miss Gradenko about anyway Mm-mm. okay yeah, that's, that's, me that's, earlier. A, yeah. that's a Stuart Copeland song yeah yeah it's an odd it's it, but you know you talk about the Beatles so yeah I think about albums as periods of insider you know influence what the band was being influenced what the individual members were reading or watching or what art film had they been to what gallery thing had they done yeah who were they dating and you're know, walking on the moon is to me a love song in a way it's like I'm, I'm coming home from your house i'm walking on the moon it's about it's about these really human experiences but the song doesn't sound like a love song you wouldn't call i don't think walking on the moon you would never bill it as a love song, but it's really about that elation under the streetlights, you know, mm-hmm. that, that just that really common human experience that you can relate to after a first kiss or first crush or first love. Way different than Roxanne, way different than, you know, as you said, you know, don't stand so close to me, which is either autobiographical oh, yeah, that, no, or not. You, you <laughs> right, know, yeah. No, yeah, I think that, yeah, that was the, you know, don't stand so close to me 86 is where like you know i uh it, i lost it you i was know, so lost pissed off when i got that every breath you take the singles compilation and it had that 86 version on it because yeah, i yeah. wanted the original version we're and I, united in i that. still like have not bought that on vinyl and just got all the records because i don't want to have that experience of listening to the 86 version of it yeah good. Um, you're a purist i like so that. i uh i know uh We'll start with Travis on this one because I already know his answer. <laughs> but best, uh, not best, but your favorite police record and why? Oh yeah, just it, and it, it. I didn't have to move too far from the source of truth for the, the Ghost of the Machine, which mm-hmm. just it absolutely spoke to me. The, you know, I was I was in the computer club. I was fascinated by the the birth of technology that was, you know, for, again from middle America, middle classes watching these things unfold. We didn't live in L.A. Um, you know, we, we didn't have any relatives that worked at NASA or they were at Berkeley or Stanford, you know, doing anything. But like the LCD, you know, the cover, that contrast, like the, it kind of looked a little, little spooky and evil. But like when you dug into it, like there was something spiritual going on in there. And again, just with the, the things I was into from a, a literature standpoint, or at least entertainment reading, you know, if I call some of the fantasy stuff literature, but it was it was questing it was quest worthy right and and there was there was so much of the pre- protagonist in that album and you know what were we going into and then when i bookended or when it would be in the same uh record bin or even in the same listening session as, as something like signals uh from rush again like who are we and what are we doing and it's exciting but terrifying and it it, it makes you want to think a little deeper and i think there aren't too many of those perfect albums out there where just every track is just on and you can find something to dig into, but that one's pretty close. There may be one track, I think, on the first side that I would I would say maybe doesn't fully deliver, but for me that was a really was a really well conceived and well executed album. Whether it was a concept album to them or not, but uh, for where they were Probably in that moment, was. like the Beatles, you know. Yeah. Trying to say something, trying There's to probably a feel something. Theme uh, in, amongst all of in it. Sting sax playing, thumbs up, thumbs down. I know John's answer to this. 
I, I don't really think about Sting's sax playing. Yeah, his um, sax life. Uh, um, that comes later with the tantric stuff. Yeah, it, I guess I, I, I admire the fact that he he has qualities that I would aspire to. Maybe he's curious, you know. He, again, well-read the fact that he would challenge himself to pick up a completely different instrument and, you know, sort of channel what skill or ability he had to try to, to do something. I, w- I would be intimidated, you know. I don't play anything except the stereo. So, you know, going from a reed instrument to, you know, guitar, and there's even the the, the period with the, there's a little story about the butt keyboard, you know, where he sat on a keyboard and, you're in the middle of a session and it sparked something like what was that you know tonal a tonal message you know that they picked up and riffed around so john well they kind of go in order i mean like in chronological order but it's so close that um i'm looking at the i'm looking at it right now i mean synchronicity of course is mm-hmm. like my least favorite of the original ones hmm. and by least favorite I mean like um, less favorable than the other ones you know Ghost in the Machine is like a huge record um, I don't know we'd probably go Regatta um, Zenyatta Outlandos Ghost in the Machine Synchronicity mm-hmm. in, in my um, in my like mind yeah I mean, those first two were just like so. They were kind of of a piece, and there was like some. There were some weak spots on uh, Brigada, you know, because it was. um, Some of it feels kind of rushed. Uh, Zenyatta is like solid, all the way through as an album. I love that. But it's not my favorite. Right. But I think Message in a Bottle is like, uh, you know kind of saves Gregata de Blanc and Walking on the Moon is on that one too yep. I believe yeah um and uh I mean the I like the aggressiveness and and unformed parts of Outlandos yeah that, that punk thing again you know where they yeah. were well, a little bit of ska they they had definitely been exposed to something you could tell and they were rolling it around you know in their heads and well anybody that was in London was like exposed to that reggae sound because mm-hmm. there were no punk records to play in the club, so they played reggae records. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it's hard to simplify all this stuff to a certain extent. It's like uh, you know, a lot of it is show business as far as uh, you know, like the uh, um, the T-shirt that. Uh, John Lydon wore around that said I hate Pink Floyd he didn't actually hate Pink Floyd and stuff but he was being provocative that's something to uh, remember about all that stuff and that's kind of the thing that Stuart Copeland was picking up on as far as like the aggressiveness and and stuff like that but uh, it evolved into something else you know Hmm. have you guys ever heard the uh, Clark Kent um, record. It's all Stuart Copeland. It's uh, 79, I think. Um, it's all Stuart Copeland songs. He plays like the majority of the instruments and stuff like that. It's an interesting um, it's an interesting back piece to the Sting thing. Hmm. 
as far as like you know his songwriting sensibility he invented a uh, persona that is most more most obviously him because he's wearing like you know sneakers like uh, Stuart Copeland and stuff like that the drumming sounds like Stuart Copeland but uh, it kind of sounds like a uh, cross between that fallout single and like police music at the time and mm-hmm. the song the songs are funny and uh, I mean I was such a like police head that I tracked that down I mean it was like uh, they tried to make that happen but um, I don't know you know, Sting is the pony to bet on as far as, like, you know, keeping the whole enterprise going forward. What's crazy to me is in that six-year span between 77 and 83, how they went from the first record of Synchronicity. As you two as listeners and, like, fans at that time, was there a point where you're like, I don't like the direction this band is going, or am I evolving with them? Because that's, you know, there's a Evolution. cutoff point with for, you know, we Travis and I talk about the good George Benson versus the bad George Benson and there's definitely cutoff points in a lot of musicians careers where they jump the shark or they just they turn into something they weren't at the beginning but they still have the same name which has always been baffling to me when a band has such a stylistically different sound they're still calling themselves the same thing and if you look at 1977 police versus 1983 police you could maybe make that argument without the fact that like you said stings of the glue kind of holding it all together but when did either one of you start to see the cracks in the facade and this we're not talking on the solo records yet because we'll get to mm. that but <laughs> this don't, is just within the police or don't stand so close to me 86 yeah when they uh um trotted that out i knew there was no gas in the tank because it was an, <laughs> an inferior version <laughs> for one thing and uh there wasn't anything else surrounding it, and I think they're the. I think that was around the time of the Sting, first solo record too, right? The '85, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, so, yeah. And I liked those first couple of Sting solo records. You know, I was a total listener. I think we. Uh, I was just grooving to. Uh, um, fortress around your heart i mean i think that song is as good as any police song any police song Mm -hmm. um i don't know you know what the castle in italy ain't gonna pay for itself so i don't really uh the i don't really begrudge these guys the you know however they want to evolve whatever they want to call themselves what say do we have you know consume it or don't that's that's the thing you you know who cares i mean a lot of you we don't know any of these people really i mean we think we do because they reveal so much of themselves in this uh in their music and the songs and stuff like that but uh you know what uh the the audience is, is equally important injecting things into it and I learned early on as like a songwriter and a performer that whatever you think about what you're performing, whatever you think about what you're saying or however you think you played, you know, that's just way over the heads of most people. And they like, you know, interpret the whole thing their way, you know, and they don't have any idea what went into it or any, any such nonsense as that. Um, it's, <laughs> um, 
I mean, I hate to get back to the Elvis Costello thing, but um, Elvis Costello, like, um, evolved in many different ways. And, you know, and they, um, and I liked everything up to a point and stuff. And then it just, like, uh, became fatiguing. Do you know, is it, you know, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like, uh, yeah, guys, speaking of guys that are overly clever, the guy is like, uh, um, great. But those first, like, five Elvis Costello records are, like, of such monumental importance in my life that um, you couldn't help but fall down after that <laughs> in estimation. You know, and it's, you know, and it's just my consumption patterns. Who cares, you know? Like, uh, I can't sum anything up. I just, you know... I'm on my own path. I'm, on, you know, I'm hearing things from my viewpoint. You know, Travis in Ohio could hear it a completely different way. Yeah. And when did you hear something in the police sound? Where you're like, or did you? Was there something? Did you evolve with them, or was there a time where you're like, okay, these guys are changing, and I don't know how I feel about it. I I didn't so much with the music. I was again just being hungry for being hungry and being open-minded. Um, like John says, I think it's about where you are as much as where they were. Because you're, again, to your timeline, you're listening to music that was sometimes a decade old, you know, and you're in a far different place, you're in a different locale. But there's some universal themes to some of that. Yeah, which we're not in London, we're not in England. Right, Roxy um, Music Where the stuff like comes that. from, and it's just like, a, there's like a kind of a universality that, it, like, pop music can like um can uh, uh tap into mm -hmm. and reach across you know and but Stuart copeland isn't english yeah he's you right. know he's you know he's a yankee mm -hmm. you know so it's a an CIA odd construct. Yankee. it's an odd construct from the outset right mm -hmm. right so you know there aren't a lot of just think about that arc too so you know, we'll get back to the, the falling apart, but it, for me, it didn't. It was just a, it was it, it it was just another version of where they were, where I was in the discovery path. Me either. And it I, didn't, I agree it didn't disappoint. Travis. It just, yeah. I, I was shocked, like I said, when I some of the earlier material, like, whoa, that's that's a little different than I was expecting. That's a little heavy. I may not be ready for all of it. You know, you see it start to appear in movies or pop culture you know there's a scene in eddie murphy's in jail in i think it's 48 hours the first one where he's got a walkman on in like 1990 and he's just screaming to roxanne <laughs> and it's it's how much that song sort of wove its way into culture and the way that it it does in movies and it wasn't cliche but it's always been a I mean that song's a there's a lot in that. Yeah, it's sturdy too. It's short. It's it just like that first guitar riff. I mean it it hits you. It's like you kind of have to be almost sadistic sadistic not to like it in a sense. I mean if you like music and you like rhythm mm -hmm. and you like you know three minute pop songs, you, there's got to be something there for you. Yeah, agreed. Right. And the catalog for me, like you know, just the Sting solo catalog doubles you know the Police's output of a full album. So mm -hmm. for me, they never ran dry they never ran short now to your point yeah they they became a lot more plastic coated polished 
groomed, overproduced, maybe you might even throw in there in that 86 version, like, they were a victim of that MTV consumption thing, right? That that was that was slick. That was... I, don't, I think they were dry, honestly, and I think that had they had they produced another record mm-hmm. it would have been what you're talking about yeah could have tanked for yeah sales true fans could have walked away from it and, and you you know it was smart of uh sting to go in a uh different direction yeah i feel like talking heads didn't quite get there because you have little creatures which is basically a david burns solo record and you know at least yeah. from my perspective and it feels oh. like that that they true. should have probably broken up a couple of years before they did. True stories, I loathed. <laughs> I really did. Well. And Little Creatures, I mean, had some good songs on it, but that was like a cracking point, and that's probably what would have happened to the police. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, no, I, th- I think things run their course. Yeah. And well. they and they, um, other guys in the band like uh, are tired of hearing it. Hmm. And uh, it's time for them to move on. Evidently, the the whole that whole what '86 tour is like is on film because Stuart Copeland was filming the oh, entire yeah. thing, mm-hmm. and uh, that um, they absolutely hated each other after that. Hmm. And so I think it was, I think it, I think it played out perfectly. You, you spent two weeks on your current tour on my couch. Yeah. Do you hate me now? <laughs> Not quite well, yet. Yeah, but then, um, the, yeah, the van, the, the, the road, the demands to be the... Because, again, they they went from a bar band, quasi-punk or self-styled, you know, punk, new wave act, which was loud, it was fast, it was hard, it was playing to drunks in, in dirty, smoky little clubs, and then they're a stadium act, right? Like, how do you reconcile that, maybe... As they, an individual, when did they go stadium? 81, 82? After, uh, after Ghost or Synchronicity? Either one of you guys ever see Police Live? No. Nope. I didn't think you did. I know you saw like U2. No. But, well, before we get into the Sting solo canon, I want to stop and, uh, you know, talk about, um, you know, Sting obviously has been a, uh, you know, I don't know if an influence is the right word, but like I go back to uh, the story I'm going to tell here is when I was in high school and started collecting CDs and getting into music, one year I spent an entire calendar year saving up quarters in a big glass jar, and I saved up enough to get the Pink Floyd Shine On box set, which was $125 at the time, which it's a lot of money for a 16-year-old, but the next year I'd save nickels and I had enough to buy the message in the box box set. Mm. And I'm leafing through this thing and the pictures and like enjoying the B-sides and the stuff from like Brimstone and Treacle, Treacle. and all the stuff that I never heard on yeah, yeah. the, uh, I mean, it was everything. Um, oh yeah, we were, were you as fascinated as I was with Sting, the actor, mm-hmm. like in Quadrophenia? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, but they, again, there was there was a lot of, <clears throat> there was a, I think that was an early experience at least in my understanding of the crossover right bowie had uh, done labyrinth uh, somewhere in that time i didn't look up the date on that we can 84 google it so yeah so and and so they were trying to branch out and uh, again i you could probably look back to mtv you you had to have a face for this right you had to be marketable 
beyond the music. You, what, what was the video with them out on a boat? Or is it just the photos in that box set? Because what I'm wheeling back to here is when I'm leafing through the photos in I'm there. Just de- I'm just delaying yeah, the yeah, barb that's coming. Yeah, yeah, you're trying to get away from this. I know so, this pitch is coming. Travis, growing up, I didn't understand this style choice, but he had a lot of sweatshirts that had, he would cut off the sleeves, like at a weird angle, about like t-shirt length, and he would cut the collars out on them. And I was like, is this an the? ambush? Like, is this like, like, are you being ambushed? I knew like, he had this I'm pitch like, to throw tonight. I just didn't like, yeah, you know, is he going to throw up my first at bat? Or this, yeah. this is the slider that's going to get Altuve to strike out he'd, for a he'd, change. He'd but, let us um, use in and get comfortable up there. I did not know anybody who had this style and who would cut the collars off of a sweatshirt and chop them off into, like, T-shirt length. And I'm looking through this box set after knowing my brother for, you know, 16, 17 years by this point and questioning some of his choices, including that one. And I'm like, Sting's sitting there on a boat or whatever, or in some photo, and he's got a sweatshirt on with the sleeves cut off and the neck is cut off. And I'm like, oh my God, I put two and two together. And it's like, okay, Sting's kind of like a hero for my brother, I think, in, a, in that respect. And so, yeah, what did like, you know, how did Sting speak to the two of you? Because obviously as fans, like, there was something about him that resonated with you and spoke to you. And I like the high-pitched voice. Um, I'm not uh, in favor of bass players being singers, but I made an exception in Sting's case. <laughs> um, and that's why it like, made me so happy to see him playing guitar in the uh, Sting band. Um, I'm being kind of uh, facetious here, but... Uh, um, you know, I like the band. I wasn't like, you know... A big sting guy, I guess. Um, I thought it was fascinating, but uh, he certainly he certainly wasn't as like uh, as profound uh, influence as uh, as uh, any number of other guys. Like I don't know. I always had like you know fickle and uh, and wide-ranging tastes you know as much as I was uh, into um, as much as I was into the police I was also into the stranglers and uh, and Prince I went without eating for a month eating like a bag of potatoes instead of like you know having meals I bought 1999 I love that story <laughs> well, how about you, Travis? I, mean, I feel like maybe Sting was maybe more of a hero for you, but you were also a little bit younger and maybe a little bit more impressionable than John was by the time you got to him. Yeah, and, and I, I was think an adult at that time. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, I think it does go back to the fact that yeah, he was you know, was there some self styling going on? Yeah, for sure, because he was he was literary, he was a little clever, you know, things you want to be. Right. As you get into discovering yourself and what you're into, you know, I think uh, just the punky hair and the you know he was he was interesting. He was he was a bit of an enigma, and he w- he was morphing right, and he was changing. And at that time, uh, mm-hmm. I did do some some further research thinking about this though, yeah, because I think I think 
Sting was a man of his time at that time, right? Because oh. Flashdance came out in 83. Uh, the Goonies with Josh Brolin, 85. Very similar sweatshirt if you yes, go back absolutely. and look. Josh Brolin, uh, Eagles, Travis Right. Brayden. Van Halen, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. So the 80s, for me, especially the mid-80s, was a period of like clothing mutilation high point right oh yeah you had there, to modify yeah, there was a lot of there distress was, abuse yeah there was the all the sweatshirts with yeah. like the like like well, a the bear cuts, the razor cuts and yeah, mid, like a bear mid, had mid, like attacked you yes and midriffs <laughs> right and you know i was pudgy and i wasn't going to pull off a midriff but i thought i can cut the neck out of this because the necks on those heavy crew neck sweatshirts were a little they were a little constrictive anyway yeah, right much, yeah yeah if it with the quality wasn't there and then yeah, but it was also weight room culture. So there's also period pictures of Schwarzenegger in something similar. Mm. And I think his was maybe more functional because it was massive. But when I look at that early, mid-80s period, I'm like, that was the style. Like, that's what yeah. people were wearing. And, you know, holes in jeans today and abrasions and distressing. Yeah, we cut the shit out of everything. And, and then we took the cut pieces and made headbands out of them, you know, for the weight room or for just for head knocking and, mm-hmm. you know, head bobbing. That was... Yeah, I remember that. There was something to, to be had with every piece. Even the sleeve was, you know, a, a, a do-rag of, of the age, you know, because we weren't going to, I don't know, do-rag existed, but, like, the sweatshirt kept my, as my hair got longer, it kept it out of my face yeah. under my football helmet. I'm like, what is that? The sweatshirt sleeve from this very sweatshirt. But, yeah, I think he was uh, he was right on point kind of with the 80s stuff. And then later... Um, when I discovered that early period stuff, yeah, they were wearing skinny tight jeans, skate type shoes or boots, mm-hmm. you know, and there was just a look about that. And then that, whether you picked it up from new wave culture, right? Safety pins. Mm-hmm. So the bear slash and then safety pinning it maybe back together or just a row of safety pins. Yeah, it was probably an evolution of the, of the Vivian Westwood, um, mm-hmm. uh, Johnny Rotten. Uh, approach to clothing it's really like foggy about where i mean um that's the thing about origins there's no single origin for anything Mm. i mean um a lot of that punk uh clothing thing was like uh um i mean was richard hell yeah uh richard myers the uh guy that Malcolm McLaren saw when he was over like managing the New York Dolls in their like uh, um, hammer and sickle period you know Um, and you know that went back to England it's just like everything goes back and forth and it's really hard to tell where things like originate especially when people are involved you know you never can tell where this stuff is picked up so did he have a stylist? I kind of want to go back and read about that, or was Rich, he just Richard you know, Hill? No, Sting, but <laughs> <laughs> or was he just making these kind of you know oh, either fashion to- statement? He, or, he totally had a stylist. I you know, know it could I'm have just, been his wife. I'm goofing, but yeah. uh, no, it's a you know it's a valid point. It's a fair point. Yeah. He, if anybody has a stylist, it's that guy. Yeah, right. It wasn't I mean, Copeland. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, Back there in his tennis shoes and, and a oh, duct tape on his fingers, yeah, like, drumming. Like yes. that was another picture in that box set. It was oh, like, yeah. wow, like okay, that guy's saving himself from some physical harm by his drumming. But uh, drumming is drumming is hard. Um, yeah. You know, it's such an like, incredible physical act. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's incredible. I wish I could drum. 
Yeah. It'd be so great to be in the back. I want to be a jazz drum. Well, let's uh, transition to uh, Sting. To Sting solo. So he came. It was really like the right time, and to like work with those players and stuff like that. I think it had run. I think the police had run its course. I mean, that was uh, obvious. Um, that uh, I think I read on the Wikipedia thing that he was on stage at. Uh, Madison Square Garden when he decided that the police he was going to leave the police or break hmm. the police up because he didn't think that it could go any further. Hmm. Like you, that was the you've pinnacle. been you've been date you've been on dates like that. We all have. We're like, this is not working for me. Not I wonder tonight. what song he was performing while he came to that realization. Yeah. But yeah, I get it. Yeah, you're like making out with a girl, and you're like, nah, this is. I gotta get out of this. Well, I'm just trying to. Th- <laughs> no, I've tried to slip out of the me. theater, darker theater, before. <laughs> yeah, there's stories there, but I think. And I think his his it came at the right time for me, and and it's to me it's a a sign of that intellectual, artistic curiosity and and hunger, right? Like he which is he something had fight, that I really yeah. responded. Yeah, grew him maybe, or he's like, what else does the world have for me? What. I mean, what yeah, percussion out, can I find in Central and South America? What what can I borrow from other idioms uh, in music? Who can I who can I jam with? Basically, I mean, mm-hmm. it sounds really, but oh, but like, just who else? Who else lights yeah. my fire in this moment? Yeah, seriously, you know, there's like a personal like uh, aspect of it, like who I cannot stand to be in uh, close proximity to these guys because you know there's uh, Andy Summers can play anything mm-hmm. but you know Andy Summers Stuart Copeland and uh, Sting uh, are the police and there's a certain expectation that the fan has I right. mean you you know you can trot out there as the police can you imagine like uh, uh, them playing those uh, Dream of the Blue Turtles songs no. They probably could, but well, yeah. it would like sound terrible. Yeah, they have the skill, but like yeah. I imagine what it's like to be the Rolling Stones. Like you, you're you're so typecast. You kind of and, and they've had different solo breaks. Jagger certainly tried to spread his wings, and it was just mostly odd from my yeah. <laughs> experience. But they're just supposed to be the Rolling Stones, whether yeah. we do that to them as fans or they do that to themselves. You know, is Al Alan Alda could go to PBS, but he's still, Alan you know, he's still Hawkeye yeah. to me. You know, from Mash, he's 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 still him. Yeah, even though he like is, I mean, even stuff that he was in in the '60s, you look at Alan Alda and go, oh, Mash. Yeah, 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 yeah. You reverse do engineer things, your own truth. <laughs> do things happen any that way anymore? I was just thinking about that today. Is how like fragmented everything is, mm. and how many you know genres and subgenres and genres with subgenres of subgenres that there are now and uh that gets back to the point of timing and how was uh, how sting uh you know departed this thing at exactly the right time before it got like tired for people brought the like the commercially viable voice into a different setting and had more MTV hits for it um yeah. you know it's it's pretty brilliant actually even though you know outs 
there's you don't really lose the plot with Sting. You just, you know, you can take or leave the interest in it, you know, and I'm just like the Sting fatigue set in probably oh like ninety even. Hmm. You know? Okay, Maybe so, ninety two. Well. So favorite and least favorite Sting solo record then for both of you. Dream of the Blue Turtles all the way. For your least favorite? My most favorite. Most favorite? Yeah. yeah. At we, all. We creep yeah, that's my least. I, I yeah. uh nothing like the sun does it for me. Just yeah. from diversity of, of the material and the stylings and the the different musicians that he featured. So yeah, the, Nothing wrong with Dream of the Blue Turtles. No. It just did and nothing wrong with nothing like the sun either. Mm -hmm. It's just you know it. As the audience, you bring your things to the table, as well, you know. And we talk about this in the record store all the time. Is that like, I've listened to things at work and had a extremely unfavorable opinion of it, mm. you know, to the point that I'll badmouth it. Uh, incessantly and then hmm, nine months down the road or three months down the road at some point you'll hear it in a different context or in a different way like maybe not at work and then it will you will respond to it the most recent example of this for me is that uh, Sturgill Simpson record that like has the animation movie what's oh, that called yeah that's the um yeah, it's the one where he's like uh, playing like all that heavy distorted guitar. Yeah. And you see the album cover, but I'm not. You cool. see, yeah. my thing was that I was looking for uh, like uh, Turtles All the Way Down and uh, yeah. Sturgill Simpson sound that I really like responded to and thought was great. And uh, Sturgill Simpson I heard on Elizabeth Cook's show, um, you know. Uh, who comes from a bluegrass uh, background, and that's an entirely different like kettle of fish for me. I don't really care for bluegrass one bit. Sound and fury. Yeah. They, a couple of weeks ago, I think Coralie or, or somebody put it on in the store, and I heard it in a completely different way, probably without the expectations that, you know, that it would sound like a Sturgill Simpson record. And uh, I was really digging it. And uh, it's one of the problems with listening to it at work because there's like so many extraneous things. Oh, yeah. But if you're listening to it at home, there's also extraneous things like, you know, uh, you know, maybe like some sort of problem with the plumbing, maybe some yeah. like sort of disagreement you're having with your wife and it can color things so you know the sting thing is probably a lot like that it's just like i'd reached a point in my life where I'd, you know i'd had children by that time and i just like um it just wasn't speaking to me well, yeah well sometimes you know you get in that humiliating kick in the crotch while you're listening to music <laughs> and but, yeah. uh, that's a, that's a great yeah. lyric too, and we're yeah. shiny lemon, shiny, yeah. you know, we're lemmings packed into shiny metal boxes, and we've 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 all probably had a, a moment like that. But for me, the nothing like the sun came uh, um, at a time when somebody else introduced me to that. In fact, and I'm like, 
Oh, that's the guy from the poli- what? That's the guy from the police. Like so you lost it, track it, of him. It was sort of disbelief, and in, in a way, yeah, because I had moved on to so many other genres and subgenres. To John's point of just, I was in a completely different place, and I had gone harder. I had gone more industrial. I'd gone darker. Um, you know, really went down the the, the Joy Division front two four two. Oh yeah, like remember the ministry puppy CDs? Yeah, I went down all of that, and then at a time when a love relationship an early one was blooming and then I discovered that and like wow the secret marriage vows are they are never spoken and there's this quirky song about an Englishman in New York which is which is as goofy as hey there Mr. Dinosaur right in terms of lyrics and, and yeah. accompanying musicality but something about it you know when you're experiencing something that's foreign to you like okay there's some something I can relate to about this piece and age-wise for me anyway, like part of that arc is, I, I would like to map it out better, but like it's tracked against the journey from adolescence into young adult and then mm. ultimately, you know, where this is going to adult contemporary listening. Like right. you go from fallout, again, smoky club, small stage, people throwing bottles, like mayhem, right? And then stadium tours and then as your demographic ages or you find another demographic a new demographic that's like hey this is uh, pretty palatable oh, yeah. it, well, it's that guy from the police no kidding how about a nice chardonnay you know yeah, like well, it, there's yeah. dream of the blue turtles or you know actually ten sumner's tale you know yeah fields which, of barley which was the uh the record that i hid from my friends because i was in my friend michael who also has a he's in the music industry and has a podcast and he may listen to this at some point but we've talked about that record because I was 15 at the time and the CD collection is full of the Nirvanas and the Alice in Chains and the mm-hmm. Jane's Addictions and the Pixies and all that and <laughs> I heard uh, If I Ever Lose My Faith in You on the radio and I bought that CD and I love that CD to this day. Great it's, song. It's I a tearjerker. I, I mean, love it... that record and Fields of Gold is gross in a hallmarky kind of way but it still kind of speaks to me and I mm. uh, I hid that record when friends came over huh. because I did not want to take shit from people from having that record in my collection. <laughs> for having feelings? Right, yeah, 15. That's not a good look for a dude. Um, yeah, that's but, really funny. That's never really entered. I mean, I, not. that's never really been in a... Um, that's never really been a concern of mine. Because you're a better person than we are. No, yeah. <laughs> no, that's baloney. Different age. No, it's no, no, I, no. I mean, decades-wise, right? But no, I was an outlier. You yeah. know, the punkers they did not understand how like uh, I could uh, love chic. <laughs> well, and you were you were like at least fully formed enough at that point to be like, listen, I like punk and I like disco, whereas like. 15 year old Chad wasn't there so he's hiding CDs from his friends so that he (laughs) just doesn't have to take the shit that he doesn't want to have to take I guess that I didn't really have any friends like that and wasn't invited to a lot of parties I mean honestly that I am still friends with uh, the people um you know, my best friend from high school was, like, uh, um, the guy that, like, introduced me to The Who 
mm. and stuff. And um, I don't know. We've been friends for like forty-four years. So I guess I. But you know. Um, but. You know, um, if I was hanging around with him, you know, he wouldn't get invited to uh, parties, because they did not know what I was going to do. I mean. Um, but you know, seriously, it's just like I, you know, have, I, it, I've always gone my own way on this stuff. I've always been allergic to uh, um, music that you had to have a certain uniform or haircut for. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I am not really interested in. Uh, um, yeah, I'm not really interested in like having other people dictate what I'm going to listen to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also, you know, I am not really interested in dictating to other people what they should listen to. Yeah, right. agreed. And music, that's a that's a single band or all of music just gives you that license to explore and discover those things. I think and find out more about who you are, where you are. So to get, to get to get to get back to 1982 again, <laughs> um, do, we, do we have to? No, I still want to hear. I still want to hear Travis's least favorite Sting record. So we got yours. We got your your best and your worst. Yeah, and you know, and you're like, you know, you're you're like reciting your like favorite songs that you're hiding from your buddies on the baseball team, and I'm like, oh, yeah, God, I kind of like that song, huh? You know, I have to. I'm gonna have to dig out those records and listen to them again, because maybe I'm just like you know, maybe I'm just creating a narrative in my mind that I have lost interest in Sting, but maybe I never did. Yeah, I don't know. Um, he kind of lot for me. I as a younger Police Sting fan, the uh, collaboration with Puff Daddy slash P Diddy. And then most recently, he, that's easy to ignore. He well, he did the duets album. To me, that's the jump the shark moment. Like yeah, he just did a done. duets record. I'm like, you yeah. don't have to do the duets record. You've yeah. you've you've made your Sinatra did one. Is it in a yeah contract yeah. somewhere? Is that just a label? Is that a label? You know, move. You know, you're going to see that pitch from the label at some point if you hang out in the league. Yeah, I just, I just feel like there's a tie-in with the Parade Magazine cover story and, like, yeah, you know, yeah. you're going to get lobbed the softballs. How great is it to be Sting today, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. pretty great. Yeah. Oh, Pre- yeah. It's, it's pretty great. Um, it's, yeah, it's, no, the... Got a castle. That can't be all bad. But, <laughs> I'm sure yeah. it's drafty, but... No, it's like, that's what it was like. Those, he's got space heaters. That's what I was telling, you know, they it's were, you know... sex. We talk about a space we'll heater. Oh, please. Yeah. No, they, uh... <laughs> Yeah, the, the more irritating, the most irritating solo era Sting thing is that Christmas record that he did, where he talks mm. about like rehearsing with the band in the castle in Italy, <laughs> and it's unheated. Like, uh, you know what? You know, I was I was thinking that that is like the poofiest thing. Yeah, well, we are the world too, so this is like all that's wrapped up in there too. Yeah, that I think we are the world had such a uh, momentum that uh, it like caught a yeah. lot of good people. Yeah, you up couldn't in say it. no. The sure. boss, right. Dylan's in there, well, looking Dylan's, super yeah. uncomfortable. <laughs> there's, there's memes about that now, about yeah. Dylan, like just oh my god, yeah, you just can't wait to get out of there. Yeah. So yeah, Sting, his agent, least favorite. <sighs> 
it, for me, it just it fell off, right? Like so, you know, the last half of that solo career, just like never exposed, wasn't that interested, just like kind of closed that book. So yeah, yeah, I would say yeah. After Ten Summoners Tales, which by this point now I'm, you know. It's the year on that maybe newly it's married I think okay so I'm summer's tales yeah so I'm dating now right so I'm dating the, the woman who would become my partner right so then like yeah that's a great soundtrack for things like that and that was pretty complete but no there's nothing to I don't have any I did like the soul hate. cages yeah if on a winter's night is 2009 mm. that's the yeah, Christmas the record yeah the holiday record Yes. Well, yeah, I think that he, like, you know, in Sting fashion, I think that, uh, I think that's um, winter-themed songs, mostly mm-hmm. written by others. Madrigals and religious yeah. hymns from past centuries. Right, madrigals. Madrigals. He just wanted to use the word madrigal at that point. Did but he I play keep, a lute on the record? Literary but I keep masturbation. Thinking, maybe there is a lute on it. I didn't, like, follow that up. But I keep, you know, again, um, I keep, Coming back to Spinal Tap, where they talk about the solo, but you're like, I'd really like to get my songs with the symphony orchestra, you know? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Spinal Tap is like one of, I mean, is one of the greatest, um, greatest movies ever made. Everybody that has been in a band at any level can watch that movie and go, yeah. Yeah, this is it. This, yeah, this is it exactly. You know, the the ridiculous backstage things, the conceits, and that's the thing, the sting thing, like the conceits. That's the word I was mm. looking for, because mm. it's like, uh, you know, it's completely like conceited music, but. To open your mouth to sing, to write your songs, stuff like that, is the most completely conceited thing ever. You know, it's like, uh, you know, it's like, you just have to be a dick for your music sometime. Mark Lanigan <laughs> told me that once. You know, and uh, you're going to hurt some feelings. You know? going forward you know for these songs and stuff like that which got him like knighted although yeah. i think you can like purchase knighthoods right yeah i think we should arrange that for mark lanigan he deserves to be knighted <laughs> yeah and like personally i've never felt like any betrayal by sting like no because i'm not like of a i don't have the history no, that you two have with him i don't feel any betrayal by sting either it's just like it's just you know yeah he's I mean, he's doing sting we, things i feel like we could do this again with that bono because <laughs> yeah i feel betrayed by bono that a, book. Uh, what what which book are you speaking of uh, <laughs> right. hmm, which one could it be <laughs> well before we end here I'm looking at the board, and we still have tantric sex for $400 up there. Oh, jeez. <laughs> That's his business. Always searching. Yeah. But Good for him. Yeah. yeah. Good was for that, him. Was that the period when you started wearing, like, the tunics, like, the tunics and, yes. and all that? Like, which came first, the tunics or the tantric sex? Bono. Bono. Yeah, yeah. Bono. <laughs> Are they an accessory for, like, do you? I was like, yeah, like, I think this would, yeah. Just We're exploring Open up my this, chakras like, yeah. a little yeah. bit here. 
No, I, I like that. Then in a long-term relationship, you know, there's there's things to admire there. Like, okay, I get that. And he definitely got into whatever he was into. And if it was that and her at that time, like, yeah, dig deep, dude, go, go for it. You he, know? He's he's aged gracefully, I think, for the most part. And I think oh, it was yeah. funny, like, I, although I was just like on doing looking for you know Sting on my phone, and like one of the news stories is. 69-year-old Sting in a Speedo. Okay. Showing off his abs. Okay, all right. Yoga. Yeah, there's no fat Sting period, so he's just not Yeah, there is. Is there? Yeah. There is a fat Sting. No, you didn't uh, miss it because it was like when he was a school teacher. He always talks about it. You know, like when he wore the uh, yellow jumper in the jazz trad jazz bands he was playing in with the like that was yellow and the people said you look like a wasp wasp <laughs> gordon <laughs> right yeah that's another great like thing that i discovered on here when i was looking up like the the uh the sting stuff he's like uh this is and i quote he's uh some interviewer said you know called him gordon ooh that kind of feels like yeah. Yeah. You don't do that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Uh, let's see. Uh, in the 1985 documentary "Bring On the Night," a journalist called him Gordon. To which he replied, "My children call me Sting. My mother calls me Sting. Who is this Gordon character?" In 2011, he told Time that I was never called Gordon. You could shout Gordon in the street; I would just move out of your way. <laughs> so he's got a sense of humor. Obviously, yeah. and yeah. I think that that's right. really underrated. But again, I've got to hammer this point home. We don't know any of these people. They like portray a certain thing, and you like interpret it. But you're you're passing in the night. It's just it's a fleeting thing. And he's like, they leave these these documents out there that are purportedly of their things. But you know, you you're both written. You know, like you know how you edit self-edit what you're just trying to like sell something you're trying to like you're trying to like uh make a point you're Mm -hmm. trying to sell things swell sway people and uh it's uh it's not real and it's totally real at the same time (laughs) you give them the part of the stories you you want them to see and then there's the other part of the stories that you don't let people see yeah that don't fit Mm, yeah. Don't fit with what you're doing. So, Sting is just fine. I'm gonna have to go listen to the later stuff. Um, you know, now probably play it in the store. It's probably it's selling again. Sting channel on X. Yeah, I remember at one could... point we had uh, this joke that uh, we had six copies of Ten Summers Tales on UCD, and we're like, oh, let's sell a Sting six pack because like they just like <laughs> piled up somehow, and they were just festering there, and I felt really sad about those but now things are happening because they're you know people are nostalgic for that cd era Mm. and uh you know what i said this many times and been ridiculed for it it's a valid format as a matter of fact things like uh electronic music and you know grindy music or things that are longer than like uh, 20 minutes long um, that they're well served by the CD format like box sets like that American Epic box set um, mm-hmm. things like that 
well suited for the uh, um, CD era. And a lot of those Sting albums are like double and quadruple yeah. albums because they're like made for CDs yeah. in 80 minutes. Yeah, and taking advantage of every second there. Yeah. Well, any last thoughts before we wrap up on Gordon? <laughs> um, you could like mention that name and I would just move out of the way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. From from the angst and anger, you know, rage of youth. Like I think he's he's been with me for a long time, and yeah. I have no complaints about him being along for the ride. And I'm richer for it in a lot of ways. And That's had a lot of fun screaming those lyrics and yelling and jumping up and down in clubs and yeah, getting misty eyed, listening That's to something on a long drive on a CD in a vehicle too. That's well stated. Thank you. I think, you know, like, listen, you know, I've been thinking, I didn't listen to any, any of the police records, any of the, well, I listened to a little bit of the Sting's greatest hits, uh, and, you know, got into Fortress, um, a little bit at, uh, for, uh, for that killer chorus, the way that it kicks it up a gear, and, like, Branford Marsalis's voice, in that as a counterpoint to uh, the thing that kind of unusual I, yeah there's um, it's in my head too and uh, it, it evokes a lot of memories and a lot of feelings in me to to uh, think about uh, next to you which is which is the song that I remember from uh, uh, the first one, Outlandos, because it starts the record, and um, it's just like a shot across the bow. It's super aggressive, and uh, everything works about it. Um, you know, I could probably remember uh, every note of that record if I put my mind to it. So, uh, I don't know that, you know, if, um, you know, things show up at a certain time in history that, and, um, if it's not the right time, it'll disappear. And they were mm. lucky enough to, uh, they were lucky enough to like have the right sound at the right time to like, uh, garner an audience and yeah the world is better for it and I just wonder like how a lot of this stuff will sound if electricity goes away mm. and people um, and people like uh, sing it hmm. and whether or not these things will exist in or they will just mutate into a different form and stuff like that. I'm sure that they're out there. I'm sure that it's like, I'm sure that the, it's out there, but the zeitgeist is one thing that is, um, uh, is hard to capture, lightning in a bottle. Yep. Madrigals will always be with us. <laughs> yeah, you, you <laughs> <laughs> you talk to a Mac Miller fan about madrigals. <laughs> that's my that's my point. Nice.
Well, thank you both for joining me today as the inaugural guests on the Suburban Abyss. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Yeah. When this comes out on EP, it's going to be big. <laughs> <laughs> there's going to be some editing. Limited editions. Oh, no. Yeah. There's no editing here. got to edit the, yeah. The monkeys didn't perform like I wanted them to. That's what you're sitting there thinking. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. This was great. Thank you both. And thank you, everybody out there listening. Viva Sting. Viva the police. The Sting. Viva sweatshirts with no sleeves or necks. Absolutely. That's that's really like the the... The crowning achievement of this uh, moment in pop culture is <laughs> cutting the necks off of sweatshirts. Yeah, and look, you know, it's it's still, you know, Bill Belichick is still doing it today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. The hood, the hoodie. Yeah. Uh, that's perfect. Uh, I, wonder, I wonder what Bill Belichick I thinks, thinks of Sting. Uh, sting. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be part two. My interview with Bill Belichick oh, reflecting yeah. on the police. Yes. Yeah. I listened to him a lot in Cleveland. I'd rather forget that time in my life. <laughs> right. I was trapped. All right. We're signing off. All right. Thanks, brother. everybody. Thank you. Good night. Good America. afternoon. Good morning. Good night. Sleep tight. Suburban Abyss shout out this week goes to Chris Langrell. Thank you for your support. The Suburban Abyss is written, produced, and hosted by Chad Andrew Dryden from his home in between Akron and Cleveland, Ohio. Visit thesuburbanabyss.com to access archives, contribute to the tip jar, sponsor an upcoming episode, or read this week's transmission in block form. Thank you for listening.